Please open your Bibles there to Psalm 63. We're going to continue. I know it's Christmas, but we're going to continue a little bit of the Thanksgiving theme from last Lord's Day. If you didn't hear that message, that was part one. You can get that, listen to that online at our website. We're still in Psalm 63. We got through many verses last week. I think we got to one, verse one. We're going to get out of verse 1, try to get to verse 5 by the end of today. You know, you come to a church like Hope, what do you do? It's so complicated. Oh my, it's so deep. How do you handle a church like Hope Bible Church? The answer is you find a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you beg or you borrow. If you don't do that, you steal it. No, I'm not, I'm not serious about that. Get a Bible, open up to where we say, look left, look right, figure out where the Psalms are, put your finger in there, listen, we're going to preach from there, and ask God to teach you something. And it's really that simple, okay? It's not that hard. Psalm 63, follow along. This is just the first five verses. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Here we read that as King David was able to seek and to find the deepest satisfaction in God, we too can find that same quench for our spiritual thirst. Spiritual thirst in the soul. What is the meaning of life? How can I find fulfillment? How can I find joy and happiness? That's spiritual thirst. It's in you. It's in me. It's in every human creature. Here's the answer to that satisfaction. Listen to what David found. Listen to what he wrote, even in a poetic way. We're doing this by pondering two meditations. Call them meditations because they're in a song and thinking about them, and they're supposed to go deep in us as we think about them. The first is the description of one who longs for God. What's a man or a woman like who longs for God? The second Uh, Meditation is the blessings that come to the person who longs for God. Why should I even do this? Answer, the blessings. I want you to hear how great they are. So the description is in kind of verses 1 through 3 to the middle, and we kind of got started with that last time. And then the uh, blessings are from the middle of verse 3 down to verse 5. And, of course, the rest of the psalm has so much to say. We're just not going to be covering that. So we pick up in the first meditation towards the end of verse 1. Besides seeking his God, after he calls God, you are my God, not just some distant God way out there, but I own you for me. When I turn to a God, you're my God. After seeking that God in his spirit, thirsting for God, David now adds his own body into the equation about how intensely he's seeking God. He says, my flesh yearns to be close to God. Have you ever said that? Have you ever even thought in those categories that my, my body yearns to be close to God? And the search for God here is meant to be described as intense. If you're trying to enter into where his mind and his spirit is here, this is not a, a lollygagging kind of a prayer. This is a, an intense time for David, as we talked about last time, with his son trying to usurp his throne. He's in an arid land. He's feeling betrayed. He is being betrayed as king. He's done so much for the Lord, and this is how the people treated him. I mean, this is tough. And now he's having an intense prayer. You know, the Lord Jesus had an intense prayer in the garden, right? He, he sweated drops, drops of blood coming from him, right? Well, this is maybe not that intense, but this is a very intense prayer. 
This is not the yearnings of a sick man for healing. I do a lot of groaning these days, wanting to be healed. <laughs> You've probably done that. If you're praying for people that you love that are sick, you're kind of doing that. But it's not that kind of a prayer. His soul is crying out for God so strongly that his very body aches to be near the one he loves so much. Now, the word for yearn in Hebrew, kama, means he pants or strongly desires. The idea is that the body has become weak, not because of the desert heat so much, but because he's sensing how needy he is for God, and that sense has not only affected him in spirit, but has affected his body as well. Now, one of those courses we teach in our Bible Institute is anthropology, and anybody can take it, and we teach in an anthropology class that approaches man from a biblical point of view, not an evolutionary point of view, that we are a body-soul unity, a uh, psychosomatic unity, that when we were created, as God took two steps to create us, body and soul were always meant to be together. That's why when there's a separation, we call that death. And then God doesn't leave us in a dead condition, but he has to complete our condition by what we call the resurrection from the dead. That's not Christmas, that's Easter. But that's putting them back together and giving us, hallelujah, a better body, right? But it's still body and soul together, one person, two parts. So what affects the spirit, is the point, also affects what? It's not rocket science, right? It affects the body. That also means sometimes what happens in your body affects so you have to be careful how you live. It goes both ways. That's who we are. And he's just basically saying, look, what's happening in my soul is also affecting my body. They go together. And it's intense. Our bodies can be influenced by our thoughts. You can get sick bodily because you're not thinking right. I don't really understand how that works. I just know the scripture shows that and demonstrates that. And we all know people where that's happened to it. In fact, probably some of us, where we felt sick just because we didn't do what it says in Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true and honorable and good and pure and lovely and of good repute, let your mind dwell on those things. Well, we didn't do that. We let our minds dwell on the things that are, well, whatever the opposite of those are. And it really messed us up. Many people suffer physically because they make other things their God rather than doing what this verse is showing, seeking for God and letting God be God in your life. They don't let money be God in their life, success be God in their life, comfort be God in their life, a relationship be God, playing golf, et cetera, et cetera, anything. Didn't mean to pick on golf, but whatever it is. Psalm 38, verse three, David wrote, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. I know you're angry with me, God, and so in my body, there's no soundness. There is no health in my bones because of my... Now, you could have said, uh, you know, I, I played too hard last night and my body is aching and I'm sore. And he didn't. He said, there's no health in my bones because of my sin. Ooh. So God bears down on those who resist his instruction and are pushing him in a way and trying to make other things in their lives God. God bears down on them. Why? Because he's a big meanie and doesn't love us? No, but because he knows we can never make anything else that he created be God in our lives without it really seriously messing us up. Sin and all of its manifestations wears the body down too. And even David had experienced this trauma. But in this trial, David is seeking God earnestly. He's doing the right thing. And he says he's in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Now, he's not exaggerating. 
I asked you last week, how many of you actually seen the Judean wilderness? It is the most barren place I have ever seen. I went through Needles, California, too. I remember stopping to pump gas out there, and I got out. And it said it was 118 degrees, and my skin was cold, and I had goosebumps. And I'm like, it's 108 degrees, 18 degrees. I'm in the sun. Why is why am I cold? It's because it was evaporating so fast. My skin was cold. But I'll tell you what, even the Judean wilderness looks drier and more ghastly than that. Here's a little description from Dr. Alexander McLaren about about that place. It says, it is a land of arid mountains without a blade of verdure, blazing in their ghastly whiteness under the fierce sunshine and with gaunt ravines in which there are no pools or streams and therefore no sweet sound of running waters, no shadow, no songs of birds, but all is hot, dusty, glaring, pitiless, and men and beasts faint and loll out their tongues and die for want of water. Now there's a preacher that's really going well with the description. I'll tell you what. Tongues on the ground and it is so dry. That's where he was. That's not an exaggeration. Clearly this location and the circumstances that David was in was not what he chose for himself that week. If they had calendars back in those days, you wouldn't have found, I would like to have my son rebel against me, try to kill me, and my kingdom turn against me after I've had set up everything so beautifully here in my capital in Jerusalem. Nah, he would not have that there. That's exactly what was happening to him. You will find yourself in circumstances, bad circumstances, the kind of circumstances James chapter 1 talks about where you fall into them and you feel you're surrounded by them and you didn't choose it, you didn't want it, you can't get out of it, but there you are. God in his sovereign plan for you has chosen this for you. And it's going to be hard, but there's a lesson, an important lesson. Rather than asking God to take away the trial and take away the circumstances like many of us would want to do right away, he did what James 1.4 actually instructs. He said, let endurance work its effect in you so that you can be perfect, or if you don't like that translation, the word actually means mature, so that you can be mature, lacking in nothing. God knows you and I still lack. We lack character. We lack endurance. We lack fortitude. We lack ability to see things through. We lack godliness. We lack love. And so he chisels away at us. He puts us through the fiery furnace and burns out the dross. And God says, let it happen. Embrace it. In fact, if you can't even rejoice in it, because God wants to improve you. You never find a really good person, a really loving and caring and faithful person. You never find a really good servant of the Lord in church, except someone who's been through quite a lot of pain and trial. Would you agree with that? Have you ever looked around and said, who are the people that are the best in my life? Who are the ones that are the best in the church? Who are the neatest Christian people to be around, the humblest folks, the ones who make the best friends? And the answer, I think, is almost always people who suffer and then handle their suffering by faith in the right way. He's trying to do that. Now, look, look as, as we go later, we could see that um, he is asking for strength in the midst of a trial, but he's also praying about the future. Look just at verses 9 through 11 so you can see part of his mindset that he rolls into as well. We're not going to exposit this, but look at verse 9. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes, but the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. He wants justice. He wants those that are liars and seeking his life to have to face the music. He's not detached from reality. 
He, he wants righteousness in the land, but he's first for his own soul, taking care of what he needs to. I think that's really instructive. I think that's important for us because there are going to be times where people do really bad things to you and you're going to want them to get it. You're going to want them to face justice. But how about this? Back up from that and say, even though this is an unjust world, an injustice is a bad thing. An injustice does need to be corrected. But the fact is it won't be completely corrected until Jesus returns. So what do we do? Do we just sit there and get angry and want revenge? No, you back up, think about yourself and ask God, God, how can I be refreshed? How can I be joyful and peace-loving and satisfied deep in my soul and not let this thing grab me and draw me into more sin in anger and revenge? And so you see he's doing it the right way here, seeking God, letting God be his God. And so... Um, there's another psalm here that David wrote at this time, Psalm 3. And David also, right there, you could go read it uh, this week, he's expressing his desire for righteous judgment. That's good. It's not wrong for you to want righteous judgment, to require justice against your enemies. Although the Word of God also says that mercy triumphs over judgment. It's even greater when you can look at someone who owes you and say, I forgive you, you don't have to pay. It's even better if they'll actually acknowledge that they owe you, right? Because <laughs> sometimes they won't, but they come to you and say, I messed up, I owe you, and you're able to look at them and say, and I owe God more, so don't worry about it. I'll absorb the loss, whether it's a financial loss or whatever it is. Mercy triumphs over judgment, true enough. But justice and judgment is righteous, it's good, and it's good to seek it, and so he does. But first things first, as I said. Now, even in another psalm, and we sang it today. Thank you, Brandon, for having us sing that today. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. If that were actually true of us, how we would grow in godliness. If it were more than just songs we would sing on Sunday, but on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we were seeking for God the same way that you ever been in the woods and there's the deer, right? And they've been running through the woods and it's hot. It's 88 degrees out. They're sweating and they come down to the brook and there it's bubbling and they bend over and they drink. Have you ever seen that? And just the way they drink. Okay, forget the deer. How about the doggy? And the doggy's been out in the backyard and they're sweating. There's a graphic example of a very thirst person, right? A doggy lapping it all up. Or maybe it's you on the basketball court in the middle of August, three-on-three -three battle, and you come over there, it's just gulp, 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 and you just do well in a commercial. That kind of thirst for God, not for the things of the world, for God. Ugh. How healthy is it to be a human being in that condition? Too many of us are still in the Martha variety if you remember the Martha Mary story, where we're busy, 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 trying to define our relationship with look what I do, 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 all day long for Jesus, for the church. We, that's fine. Service is fine. The worship, the drinking of God, the being the Mary and sitting at the feet of Jesus, absorbing well the word of God, taking notes, meditating, pondering, worshiping, that has to come first. Because that's the well in the spring that the Holy Spirit causes to bubble up in you so that when you go out and minister to people, and that's hard, you don't give up in the ministry because you have that fountain bubbling up inside of you and you know why you're ministering and you love it. And so when it's discouraging, you know where to go back and get refreshed. 
It's you learning. I should have longed after God first. Well, there's the description of the man who longs for God. Now, the second description, that's the first. The second description of a man who longs for God is that he remembers the power and the glory that God demonstrated to him in times past. Now, this is verse 2. Yay, we're in verse 2. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see, and here it is, your power and your glory. So after seeking God earnestly in his distress, David's mind now goes back in time. He's now kind of going in the zone, so to say. He's getting out of seeing the Judean wildernesses, reflecting back to those beauty spots he had in Jerusalem during his times of worship, the times where he felt most connected to God, where he perceived that. I think he's particularly remembering the tabernacle that was there in Jerusalem that glorious and holy Ark of the Covenant that had been brought there, located in the tent, the tabernacle. What happened there? God did miracles. God met David in visions. God opened David's eyes to see beautiful things during times of worship in that place. God showed forth his divine glory to David while he was worshiping. This sanctuary is not the temple yet. The temple had not even been made. That would be made by David's other son, Solomon, the Solomonic temple. It's a gorgeous temple, evidently. But the tent, the tabernacle, where the Ark of the Covenant was. This recollection is a very important step for David as he's trying to revive his soul. He's meditating on worship times. He's meditating on the power and glory of God he saw. He's meditating on what God revealed to him about himself in times past. He's setting his mind not on the circumstances that are distressful, which could only bring him greater despair, but on the glory of God. He might even have been remembering the beautiful artwork that was all in the tapestry, all in the way that tabernacle had been constructed four centuries before David's life during the time of Moses. And it was beautiful and it was designed to be beautiful. God wanted it to be a place of beauty where they gathered to worship him. The artwork of the tabernacle, the tent weavings, in other words, the beautiful designs that were there to inspire worship and to evoke awe. According to Exodus chapter 26 and verse 31, Moses at that time commanded, you shall make a veil of blue and purple. Now remember, those colors were rarer to ancient man and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, beautiful artwork of these angels, these mighty angels, cherubim. The work of a skillful workman. In other words, the very best workers in all of the land of Israel, and they had a couple of million of them, bring the best. In fact, we even read about how the Spirit of God in that dispensation empowered them in their artwork, interesting, and allowed them to come up with just the best kind of artwork, and it was brought to bear on this on this tabernacle that would be at the very center of Israeli society as they wandered in the wilderness, as they came into the land and it was conquered and then this settled in Shiloh and then later was brought to Jerusalem. The very best. So the Israelites could see as they approached, this is our, our God, a reflective of the greatness of our God. It was not an image of God because they were not allowed to make an image of God and bow down before him, but it was the beauty of creation and the beauty of the things that God had made to show the greatness of God. God values beauty. Did you know that? I think some people don't realize that. God is beautiful. 
And what he makes is beautiful and he values beauty, whether it's beauty in music or it's beauty in art. God is not bland. And it's not more biblical to be more mundane and more simple. That got into the Protestant tradition at different times. Some people thought that, I think, as an overreaction to the extravagance of uh, the way the church in the West had become, particularly the rich taking advantage of the poor. But when you overreact, usually you fall into some other kind of an error. And now the beauty the Lord wants presented in music and in artistic design that's clearly right there in Scripture was overlooked and was brought down. But if we think biblically, we could see easily how God uses displays of His power and beauty and wisdom to draw out praise and worship. Uh, Just look at outside, you know, when you're wanting inspiration for worship at nighttime in Isaiah 40, 26, he says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. Look and let it inspire your awe of God. That's the idea. That's biblical. Nowhere in the Ten Commandments does it say, don't have beautiful images near where you are as you worship. What it says is don't make an image of God and bow down to it because God is too great to be reduced to an image, you see? But the other things that God has made are meant to inspire us in worship just the way creation is. It is completely appropriate for us to bask in beauty, even here as we worship. Very grateful for those that, I mean, I'd forgotten about this. I kind of came in and I was like, wow, they, they did that for Christmas. This always surprises me how quickly it comes. And I'm like, what a beautiful job. Thank you, uh, any of you that did that. And no, I did not wear this red shirt to fix it, I, to match it, because I completely forgot. But it's, it's, it's beautiful to look at it, to let it be inspired. Sometimes the, the work of the cross or, or a wreath or something that has been made that's not an image of God draws you out. That was sort of the idea in some of the stained glass that was in the, the uh, cathedrals of old. Take, take one of the stories in the Bible and help people visualize it and help them understand uh, how great God is. Is it absolutely necessary? No, it's not commanded. But it, can it be part of our tradition of worship? Of course it can. The beauty and power of God. David knew that. He was an artistic man. He knew of the glory of the tabernacle. David remembered it here. He let him, he let that inspire him. Yet now this is important also. If he couldn't see it, if it was not in front of his eyes, could David still worship well? Could he still get there in his love for God? Could he still enter into fellowship with God when what he was looking at was the Judean wilderness. Let me make, let me change that for you. What you're looking at is a traffic jam. <laughs> what you're looking at is that tiny little cubicle at work. Yeah, you got to work at work, but maybe there's a break where you can worship. You know what I'm saying? Or mommy's, you're looking at your kids and the mess they've made in 12 rooms in your house. Can you still get there to worship? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Where you set your mind is the key. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. Sometimes you just have to do that. You have to reflect on what your mind remembers from the past, that time where you had that glorious worship experience with God, and you got to go there when what's in front of you is not all that appealing. Be like David. Reflect back there. Remember the power God showed you. Remember the faithfulness of God 
to you. Psalm 42, verse 4. These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. There's another scene David had, going along with all the people of God and walking with him, and we were singing and chanting and getting closer and closer to the house of God where we would shout to the king. And I remember that. That that inspires me. Remember your special worship times. Recall it. Let it bring you joy. The times when God displayed his power to you and answered a prayer request. The times that you prayed with the saints and you were so moved, even maybe to tears. Those are special moments of worship and prayer. Let them be your delight. I want to see the power of God. I want to see it. I want to see the glory of God. I've got to see it. My life really is about that. That's why this psalm has been, without me choosing, it's just one that keeps attaching itself to me because every time I think about why did I take the steps of faith that I did that some might call radical, why did I choose to do the things I did with my family? Because I have to see God work. I have to see God do something. I want to see his power at work. I know we have a great God. He's never changed, right? He does great things. He answers great prayers. He uses ordinary people. He'll do that for us. We just have to appeal to him, pray to him, and sit back and watch him. Watch what he does. How beautiful that is. I believe in God's power. I believe he wants to be fully trusted. I believe that we're not trusting him enough and we're not offering ourselves to him enough to see what he can do. We settle in, we just act like everybody else during the time of COVID. Well, we can't get that done. Well, there's a problem here, you see. But that's not faith. Faith sees possibilities where other people just see doubts. You want to see things happen, trust your big God. Behold the glory of God. Let that refresh you deeply. Be involved in the worship of the true God. John Piper in his booklet, The Dangerous Duty of Delight, writes this. God has put eternity in man's mind and filled the human heart with longing. But we know not what we long for until we see the breathtaking God. This is the cause of universal restlessness. Hence the famous prayer of St. Augustine. You made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. St. Augustine. There are so many scriptures that attempt as we read them to get us out of our little world and our little view of what reality is, and get us up there into heavenly glory and try to get a glimpse of what we can't see with our eyeballs, but which the eyes of faith can maybe begin to glimpse a little bit. Many scriptures do that. See if you know where these scriptures are found. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, whose inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. That's Isaiah 40. Or how about this one? The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That's Psalm 19, verse 1. And then there's this. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's Revelation 21, verse 23, the great city. 
What a description of a man longing for God. Then the third description of a man who longs for God is that he values God's loving kindness. Listen, he values the loving kindness of God towards him more than he even values his own life. That's verse 3. Look at the beginning there. He says, because your loving kindness is better than life. And then he goes on to the commitment of praise he's going to have. God has now begun to raise David's faith, began to renew his soul inside of him. David's thoughts of the glory and the power of God have reminded him where God has shown his loving kindness to David in the past. This is such an important lesson, one that you can only learn inside your own self. You can only really learn this yourself. You have to read the verses and think about your life, and you have to keep asking God, show this is true of me. It's one you got to learn for yourself. God loves me. God loves me deeply. He has a loving kindness for me. Not just dad or mom or that pastor up there. He loves me and he has a commitment and a loyalty to me. Many times in the past, David had been in a desperate circumstance. I love learning about the humble beginnings of people because you see them in their greatness and you say things like, I could never be like that man. And you got to learn where they came from. This is the, the lowest son on the totem pole in their family, right? The youngest, I don't know how many of you are youngest of eight or whatever he was, but you get overlooked, I'm sure, at feeding time at the trough, you know? You got to fight for yourself, even to get the food, you know? And you're way down there. You're last born. This is a guy who had to tend the sheep. was not a pre- prestigious job at all. And then along comes the great prophet Samuel and anoints him, you're going to be king of Israel. Thing is, though, he wasn't. <laughs> and he had to, he had to run around trying to save his life from Saul for a long time, hiding in caves and being mocked and laughed at, even acting crazy at one point in time. Philistines were trying to kill him. Saul was trying to kill him. Dangers to the left, dangers to the right. That was David's life for a long period of time. In Psalm 56 and verse 6, David wrote, they attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. His life was in danger a lot. Or Psalm 35, 4, it says, let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. He knew what was going on. Who protected him? Who was loyal to him during that time? Who remembered him? Who put the stamp of love on his life and said, no, 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 no. Uh, I anointed this guy is going to be king of my kingdom. I'm protecting him. Who did that for him? David remembered. It was God's loving kindness towards you. Do you have a promise like that for you? Anywhere in the Bible? Is there, is there somewhere in the Bible that it says that you have a God who loves you and has placed a stamp on your life so that he's committed to you in covenant to protect you, to bring you all the way to glory, to wash away all of your sins, to make you his own child, to give you an inheritance that cannot be destroyed, that's reserved in heaven for you, that you're protected by the power of God. Is there, a, is there a God up there who's promised to love you like that? That kind of a love? Not the, hey, bro, I love you, and then what have you done for me lately kind of love? But this undying, loyal love, is there a God up there like that? That you could say when you read the Bible, you know God loves me like that? You could tell the way I'm preaching the answer to all of that was yes, right? Yes. He loves you like that, not in some mushy kind of way. Oh, I love you. 
But where are you when I need you? Why do you disappear when I'm at my weakest moments? It's not love. God's love. That's there. That's why that whole footprints in the sand thing got so popular, right? You remember that little poem, you know, you're going along and you're walking with God and there's two sets of footprints and everything's fine. Then you come to this hard time in your life and there's only one set of footprints and we judge God and say, see, when it was the toughest time, you abandoned me. And then the, the answer is, no, no, no. It was the toughest time I was carrying you. <laughs> Those footprints you saw in the sand were mine, not yours. I've been there for you the whole time, you see. Faithful to us. Faithful, loyal love to us all the time. God bound himself in covenant to David. God has bound himself in covenant to you. In Christ. God loves his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is pleased with his own son. He called his own son his beloved son. He he told his son, ask me and I'll give you the entire world as a possession. That's the way he loves Jesus Christ. And he put you and me, because of our faith, in Christ. And now he says, I love you like I love my son. That's loyal love. That's Romans 8.39 kind of love. Neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is going to be able to separate us, you, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. David is weighing something in his life. He's comparing something. God's loving kindness, my life. And he says, you know what? God's loving kindness is greater than my life. That's what he concluded. Yes, it is. Without God's loving kindness, life wasn't even worth living. It was better than life. He's not exaggerating. To know the loving kindness of God is set upon your life. To be convinced of that. Well, then you land in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, you know how it ends, right? Who, who can be against us? It's not that there aren't people against us. There are. It's that they don't matter. They, they can't do anything to you. God's got you. Life finds its meaning because God has set his electing, eternal, predestined, unshakable, unchanging love upon you. Not just upon some vague you, but you particularly, if you have faith in Christ. That hymn extols the love with the words, oh, love that will not let me go. See, I'm an idiot. And if I did what I sometimes think in my mind, and don't tell me you don't, I would wander away. But he won't let me go. He just keeps doing that. Why? Because he's more loyal to me than I am to me. Because of his love. God has faithful love to your soul. Brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you've repented of your sins, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, this is true of you, every last one of you. God intends those hardships in your life, and trust me, I've done a lot of thinking about this, for your good. You say, what's the good? Romans 8.28. All things, God causes all things to work together for good, right? No, that's not what it says. It says God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to God's purposes. In other words, 
for believers. That's who it all works good for. It doesn't work all good for everybody. Everything that's going to happen in the universe, down to the little details in your life, they're all working together for good for you. Why? Because God's loyal to you in Christ. Well, what's the good, though? Well, go back and read that chapter this week. The good is not you becoming richer. The good is not you living in a nicer house or being healthier or more friends liking you. No, no. The good is not your success at work. Sorry. Straight A's on your report card. No. That's a false reading of the text. The good is you becoming more like the one person on the planet God really is pleased with. And the answer is Jesus. The good is he's going to be so committed to you that he's going to keep chiseling away on you that no matter how foolishly you act, no matter how stupid your decisions, he's going to keep working on you until you are more like Jesus Christ. He predestined you to become conformed to the image of his own son, Romans 8, 29. What is God doing in my life? I have no idea, except this. He's trying to get me to be more like Jesus. I can take that. I can accept that. I like that answer. I can deal with that. You can too. Never let the devil convince you that God is cold and distant because your circumstances are cold and hard. The only thing cold at that time is your faith and your heart. The only thing that's askew is your understanding of God himself. Because God's not like that. He's more passionate for your soul and more warm towards your soul than you are. The only way you're going to warm up your life is to draw near to him. That's what David's saying. And you got to do it through Bible truth, through scripture truth. That's why we take so long to exposit these verses so you can meditate on it and see it for yourself. What does that scripture tell me about truth? God's loving kindness is better than life. Oh, it's so important for you to check your heart, to be real about what's going on inside of you, to confess your sins, get them out of the way. Hearts aglow with God are going to long to be around the word of God with other people. The greatest fellowship I have is when we're with the people of God and we're hearing the word of God and we're singing the word of God and we're sharing the word of God and we're praying the word of God and we're testifying what the word of God has done in our life. We're counseling each other with the word of God. That's fellowship. We're getting up and enjoying and doing what God tells us to do. Go out and witness because the word of God says it. Go out and serve the poor because the word of God says to go do that. Go look after the people that have been oppressed because the word of God says to do that. Go stand for truth when others are lying because the word of God says to do that. And that's the fellowship and the partnership and the koinonia that we have together. And there's nothing greater and more heartwarming than that. Sharing that with each other and mostly with our God. How many believers desire a long exposure to God's word? People are like, no, just give us a rock concert up front. Pastor, lights going around and blazing and all of that stuff. That's what I want. You can go down the road and get that. Jazz up our emotions. Let us pretend that the way we feel after a worship time like that is really what God wanted us to have as a thrill in the soul. Guys, that's a cheap substitute. God wants you to be thrilled not with a light show, but with himself. And it's the only thing that really, when you get that and see that, you're like, man, how cheap that other stuff looks. Walter Kaiser, in his Malachi commentary, 
points out the problems that modern ministers face. If you just allow me to do this a little here. <laughs> Members of the church will sit through three to four hours of operas, lengthy symphonies, or marathon sporting events and rejoice both in the event's length and its substance. But put those same people in the house of God for just one hour and they fidget. They complain if the word of God is still being expounded for more than the anticipated half hour. Well, we go longer than that. Unfortunately, to keep yourself satisfied, sadly, I bet some of you are just texting away during worship and sermon. Because God doesn't mean anything or doesn't yet grip your soul or as much as he should. I'm just so easily distracted. The other thing, get your attention. And there you go. How can God fill that? I feel privileged to have meditated on this description of the man who longs for God. Just quickly, we're going to look at the blessings to whom? To the one who longs for God in the last part of this section. Look at verse 3 in the middle. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. I want to stop there. The first deep blessing is that he has now a worshipful and a joyful soul. David is sensing the, the presence of God with him. Yep, still in the desert. Now his heart is turned from emptiness back to joy. His spiritual throat is starting to get quenched. From that overflow of the heart, David is beginning to praise God. But David not only praises God, he's reaffirming his desire to keep doing that, to keep blessing God throughout his entire life. That's verse 4. So I will bless thee as long as I live. No one had to force David to worship God. He just desired to drink of God deeply for himself. As long as David had lips, he said. I have these lips. I'm going to use these lips to praise you. Why? Who's forcing you to do that? This isn't David being dragged to church by his parents. This is David saying, now I want to get there and I want to praise him. This blessing and this praising is going to be a lifelong privilege for him. He can't wait to do it. It's not just an occasional duty. He just wants to do it. You know, it's, it's what we would call he's making a resolve. He's resolving that in his life, all the way to the end of his life, his lips are going to be praising God. I know it's a little bit of tricky business to make promises to God. Why? Because you make promises to God from sort of an overinflated sense of what you are able to do. You think at that moment, I'm going to do this for you, God. And you make a promise. And we know even the scriptures talk about very foolish vows that were made. It's, it's, it's not a good idea to make promises to God because then you got to keep that. But you can make a resolution and you can say to God, this is what I resolve in my heart to do as you help me, as you empower me. And I'm going to get, I'm going to get help. I'm going to use the brothers and sisters in the church to encourage me, my small group that I'm connected to. You are connected to someone, I hope. And be honest with them and open and say, this is what I want to see happen in my life and use the, the ministry, the broader ministry of the body of Christ and say, I want to resolve to be a worshiping man, to be a praising man, to be a thankful man. I had that as one of my goals with the men for years, that I resolved that every time I caught myself complaining about something, and usually that's where it was. I didn't even realize I was complaining. I'm in the middle of something, and then I realized, oh, I'm complaining. This is about to turn into sin, or maybe already was sin. My, my resolution was stop myself right there and turn it into the thing God said to do it. Turn it into a thanksgiving. And then also along with that, why am I complaining? What's the problem? Don't work on complaining. Work on resolving the problem. So I was going to work on the problem and work on the praise. And it was just something that helped me. But I needed the guys to remind me. And I didn't do too well with that for a while. 
<laughs> but you can resolve, like David here, a lifelong resolution to bless God as long as he lives. I would urge you to do that. Now, as another expression of his gratefulness to the loving kindness of God, David speaks of lifting up his hands, and I'm glad he said that. In Jewish worship, the men would raise their hands. They would do it particularly when the men were called upon to lead in prayer. And yes, it was the men that led in prayer. And they would lift their hands up. Why would they do that? Because their palms are empty. And they'd raise them towards God. Why towards God? Because God is Jehovah Jireh. He's the one who provides for our needs, right? It was an acknowledgement, just like we bow and we say, thank you, God, for our food. They pray, we are empty, we are need. Fill our hands, Lord. Fill us with what we need. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, it shows... The New Testament church also practiced the raising of hands in prayer. Paul writes, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. This is the formal worship service he's talking about. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Don't take your hands and fight. Take your hands and raise them towards God and show your dependency, show your humility before God. We need you, God, to help. Lifting the hands in prayer times was not meant to be a false pretense to spirituality. It was a genuine gesture of love and thanksgiving towards God. Nowadays, I know in different denominations, people will, during worship time, do things to draw attention to themselves. And, and we've seen that, and that's not appropriate. They want to draw attention to themselves. They may not realize it, but they, their inflated sense of how important they are, often they'll just get in the most visible place they can, and be as visible as they can, and um, God knows their true motives, but a lot of times it doesn't look quite right. It just looks like they're there for them. That's not appropriate in worship. Glory and honor, uh, all of the power and all the direction and attention should be going to whom during worship? To the Lord our God, his attributes, right? His acts of deliverance and power. But does that mean it's wrong to raise hands? No, of course not. And I think honestly, still in our church, some of you want to, but you're a little inhibited, and I want to let you know, don't be inhibited. If you genuinely want to praise God and you want to raise your hands, would you please do that? Don't draw attention to yourself. Just, just praise him. And if you, you want to do a little clap or you want to shout out an, email, an amen, an amen, what did I get that from? I don't know what's going on. E email, amen. I don't know what happened there. An amen or a hallelujah or the one I like, Maranatha, and say it. Uh, put a little umph in. If you're more of a quiet person and you're reserved and you love to worship more in contemplation, then don't let anyone shake you out of that either. That's fine. But express yourself a little bit. Show your love for God. That's what he's doing, lifting up his hands. Now, the clapping, sometimes we have to make sure when you clap that you're clapping for God, not clapping because what? You are entertained. What happens in society is people clap when they think someone did a good job, right? Or they will clap because their emotions were lifted at that point in time. Oh, I felt good. That's not worship. There was a woman that used to sing in our church up front, beautiful voice, and she would sing, lead and worship. I came to her one day. I asked her, do you know the difference between leading in entertainment or leading in worship? She was, very, she was very honest that day, and she said, no, I don't. And I said, well, with entertainment, what you're trying to do is inspire people's emotions and feelings so that they feel good. But in worship, you're trying to get them to quit thinking about themselves and draw all of their mind, their heart, and attention and place it on this greater being whom they can't see. In other words, they're coming 
toward you with their attention and then past you or through you up to see the living God catching a sight of him and being in awe of him. Now, how many times is our clapping that way? Think about that. I'm not trying to restrain expressions of worship here. I'm trying to help you to understand that whatever the expression is, whether it's just silence and meditation or whether it is two hands really high in the air, one hand a little bit like this or just a clapping here, or whatever it is, you might even get to doing a little what I do in my little spot there, you know, a little bit of, well, I don't know what to call that, but whatever it is and you're excited for God, that's not only allowable, I want you to know you have freedom to do that here. But make sure that it is what? It's toward our living God. Because that, that is worship. That's not, you entertained me. So, I'm out of time. David did keep blessing his name throughout his whole life. Read any of the Psalms. Psalm 101, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. David knew God deserved the best in worship. Those of you that help us prepare these worship services, it's tough now. Bring your best. Don't start thinking about it on Saturday. Start start Monday morning. Get your heart ready. Bring the best. You musicians, people that are helping us with sound. This is the most important meeting we have the whole week. Bring your best. Ushers, bring your best. It's all about God. It's all about giving him glory. He deserves the best. Artwork. Looks like you did bring the best. My mom would have been so pleased with these poinsettias, by the way. But whatever she's seeing in heaven, I don't mean to discourage any of you, but it's it's probably a little bit better up there in heaven. If we went on, I would say the second deep blessing, and I'm only going to summarize it here, of the man who longs for God is a feasted and a satisfied soul. Some of your translations have it as still something that would be in the future. I will be satisfied. I concluded as I was studying this that David's spirit and soul actually got to that point here. And the present tense of the Hebrew verb here is the better translation in verse 5, where he says, My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. I think he's arrived that way, and I think that's the correct judgment. uh, That's the correct translation. This speaks to a present and a vivid experience that David was having, not merely future hopes that his soul would one day get there. Remember, we've already seen a change come over David as he broke forth in joyful praise in verse 4. This satisfaction of the soul is so rich, he's able to describe it and compare it to a man who's just finished eating a full and a satisfying meal. Maybe that's why it's better preaching this after Thanksgiving, because you could think back to what happened this past Thursday. And I don't know what it was for you, whether it was turkey or ham or your favorite, hopefully. Think about that Thanksgiving meal. Think about after that Thanksgiving meal. If everything went back and you leaned in your best chair and that was a satisfying moment, that's the parallel where his soul is now. He's just devoured a full, meaty, and rich spiritual meal through his contemplations. Maybe for David it was roasted lamb, I don't know, with the right spices. But he's there with a deep sigh, full contentment. God himself has enriched his soul. With what? With himself. With thoughts of divine glory and power. He cried out to God in his despair. And now David is savoring the satisfaction of rushing to God, 
consuming God and having communion with God. Nothing replaces God as the soul's satisfaction. Nothing. Go out now, try anything else to fill that void in your life. You'll waste your time. You'll commit sin on top of sin. You'll never arrive there. David has found satisfaction. That's where you can too. That's healthy. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's a human being coming to understand a one lesson in life that's the most, I'll go out on the limb and say it's the most important practical lesson in all of life to understand that only God can be God in your life. Only God can fill the deepest desires of your soul. And that's why worship of God, communion with God, Bible reading with God, prayer with God, that's why we always talk about it. It is so central to everything you do. Lose that and everything else goes downhill. Alexander McLaren wrote, we can have as much of God as we desire and what we have of him will be enough. David's setting did not change. His spirit did he drew near to God, James 4, 8 says. And if you draw near to God, what does God promise to do for you? God will what? Draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Do that. Come before God. He'll meet you there. And remember the sixth beatitude in Matthew 5. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will See God. Is there anything else in your life that you can say besides God about which you can confidently say, I'm quite sure that when I get it, it's going to fully satisfy me and there'll be no more thirsting? There just isn't. I don't know what you're longing for today. You're going to rush home today and you're going to get pictures out of a house you want to go buy. You're going to pull your wife aside and say, that's the sports car I just got to have. I don't know what it is. Well, I can guess it won't satisfy. Put it in its right place. It's not that you can't think about it. It's that it can't be thought of anywhere near you think about the Lord our God. Fortunately, you are a project on which God is working. And unlike some of us, God is patient. So as he's chiseling away on you, a little here, a little there, if it doesn't look quite right, He'll keep working on you. He'll be patient with you. And you will grow. And you will find God more and more in your heart. Find satisfaction in your God. One warning, and I'll close. If you don't come to the Lord in times of peace and well-being, God has a lot of holy means at His disposal to make sure that something kind of walks into your life that you didn't want and it causes you to seek Him. You see, David was in this predicament mostly because of his own sin. It was years earlier that David had sinned against the Lord committing adultery with Bathsheba. You know that famous story. And then having Bathsheba's husband, a good man, Uriah, killed in battle. Guys going to battle for David, who's the commander-in-chief, right? And has him put on the front lines, withdraw the lines, and have him die so he could have the man's beautiful woman. It's a terrible sin. 
It's like, it's like there's like 12 sins in there or something. <laughs> and then came Nathan the prophet predicting the calamity that would be in David's house because of that sin. 2 Samuel 12, 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Absalom's rebellion came along with other acts of violence in David's house, just as Nathan predicted that it would. God used this to promote David, or provoke David, but also to have him in a situation where all of these sorrows would be coming upon him. The pain of a son coming to kill you, and then in that battle that would come after this psalm, where David was pleading with his generals to spare the life of his rebellious son, you know the story, his arrogant son, his hair got caught in the branches and he was hanging there and he was run through with a sword and killed and then David had to mourn the death of his own son as well. And so I don't know what God's doing in your life. I don't know the particulars, but God wants you like his son. God's going to work on you. He's got to get your attention so you could see who he is. When we all are in heaven and we see God for who he is, we'll get it. We'll understand at that point in time, why was I ever thinking of anything else on earth? Why did I ever think gold and silver could satisfy me? Aren't those fleeting relationships there? They could never be that powerful. Fame and glory, oh, it's not needed at all. And all those awards that are collecting dust, who cares? Look at the Lord, my God, see who he is. Why couldn't I have just learned that earlier? Well, here you're hearing it, and here you can learn it. And may God, may God focus our faith on him, because only he can satisfy. Father, thank you for these extra minutes, and thank you for just being able to look at these meditations and think about them. Father, help your people get on their hands and knees and seek your power and your glory how you have given the church such a gift during this COVID time. And I fear in so many ways we're squandering it. May you fire up your people so that when we finally can do some of the things we want to, there is energy for your kingdom and there are volunteers for the ministry. And there is joy and praise that exude from the heart. May our worship grow and get louder and more sincere. To your honor and your glory, God, we pray it. Amen.